0: Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. The disastrous repercussions from the giant Medicaid scam in Arizona that was exposed in May continue to grow. This week, a Tucson recovery facility abruptly closed, leaving some 200 people with no place to go. The scheme ensnared hundreds of Native Americans, some who were taken against their will. Now tribes as far away as Montana are tallying the extent to which their citizens fell victim. We'll get an update from those following the fallout, coming up right after the news.
1: This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas from KMBA in Anchorage, Alaska, filling in for Antonia Gonzalez. A first-of-its-kind all-women skateboard competition is coming to Navajo Nation Saturday at the Two Gray Hills Skate Park. The Skate Jam Skateboard Competition will bring together women and girls to put their hard work and practice to the test. Amy Danette Deal is the founder of Four Kinship, an indigenous-owned clothing brand and organizer of the Danette State Garden Park Project. She says while spending a day at the skate park with one of her groups, one of the girls came up with an idea idea of having an all-women skateboard competition.
2: And I'm like, let's do it! (laughs) And they came up with the name, and they've just all been working together the last two months to really make this happen. And it's been a great experience.
1: Deal said using skateboarding to bring the community together just made sense.
2: I'm not a skater, you know. But I'm an executive from the active sports industry, and I personally know so many athletes, and every single one says the same thing to me of, like, Amy, skateboarding changed my life. It saved my life. It's like people that struggle with, um, you know, say, mental health issues or just health issues, there's always a place for them within the sport. It's something you can do anytime. Uh, You can do it by yourself. You can do it with friends. It's just a great way to process emotion that you go through during the day and, and things that you struggle with. So I knew it was just such a great way to bring a really beautiful tool to our kids.
1: The event will also raise awareness for the need for equipment for the Diné youth and will help the organizations get to their goal of providing 2030 youth on Navajo Nation with skate equipment. We've made
2: a really beautiful partnership with a company called Monarch Skateboards. I just have to raise a lot of money between now and the end of the year and I'm just you know I'm down for that because it's just necessary for these kids to be able to experience the sport so we have $25,000 $25,000 left to fund before end of the year, but I know we can do it.
1: Over a dozen projects in Oregon have received funds as part of a federal initiative to cut greenhouse gas emissions. KLCC's Brian Bull reports.
3: Altogether,
0: 15 projects in 11 counties and two Native American tribes received money. About $13 million has been made available for small urban and rural projects that cut greenhouse gases from transportation. Ryan Webb is the engineering and planning manager for the Confederated Tribes of the Grand Ronde, which is getting almost $700,000 for four electric vehicles and two charging stations. People of this land have always been good stewards of it, and I think being able to be considerate in how we can limit the impact that that footprint has, it's one component of what the tribe does when we look at kind of sustainable projects or our footprint on the land. The Oregon Department of Transportation says five years of federal funding will come to $82 million for state projects. ODOT says it aims to lower the state's greenhouse gas emissions by 60 percent by 2050. For National Native News, I'm Brian Bull.
1: The eighth president of Haskell Indian Nations University in Lawrence, Kansas, was sworn in this week. His leadership comes as the tribal college is serving the most Native American students in 12 years. Dr. Frank Arpan was officially inaugurated in a ceremony along with his Yankton Sioux Tribal Council in attendance. Arpan says his focus is on a holistic environment. Arpan stated that Haskell has more than 880 students representing 140 tribal nations at Haskell this year. I'm Joel Freitas.
0: National Native News is produced by Kiwanek Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
3: Nobody likes a crowded highway. A crowded crib is even worse. For a safe night's sleep, use a fitted sheet only and be sure there are no toys, blankets
0: or pillows around your baby. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission.
3: Ready to start, manage or grow your small business?
0: This is Native America Calling, your national humanities medal-winning radio show and podcast. Officials in Arizona say more than 300 rehabilitation centers have been shut down since May in an ongoing Medicaid fraud investigation. Thousands of residents of those centers, many of them Native Americans, were turned out in the street. Just this week, a Tucson facility abruptly closed, leaving 200 people with nowhere to go. Since the start of the scam that officials say reaches into the hundreds of millions of dollars, Tribes as far away as Montana say their citizens are also victims. The Blackfeet and Northern Cheyenne tribes and community advocates are among those working to reunite victims with their families. We'll get updates today about those efforts. We'll also hear about the larger repercussions for the real and vital work of addiction rehabilitation. Welcome to our conversation. If you have a perspective to share, you can join us by calling 1 800 996 2848. You can even call in anonymously if you prefer. We're at 1-800-99-NATIVE. On the line in Phoenix, Arizona, is Reva Stewart. She's a grassroots advocate with the Stolen People, Stolen Benefits campaign, and she is Diné. Hi, Reva. Welcome back to NAC.
4: Good morning. How are
0: you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Also in Phoenix is Jerry Long. She's a Native American advocate and the Director of Business Development at Milestone Recovery. She's also Danae Jerry. thank you for joining us.
5: Uh, Thank you, sir.
0: Reva, we talked in June and you outlined the problem with these treatment facilities accused of Medicaid fraud in Arizona. Please give us an update on what's happened since.
4: Good morning. Um, As a matter of fact, since I um, spoke with you all, I think it's gotten a little bit more intense lately with the fact that we're still seeing recruiters and we're still seeing you know deaths in these homes. Um, We've been going out more often and we're getting calls on a daily basis um, because of our unsheltered relatives. We do have um, the Phoenix Indian Medical Center Community Intake Center um, in place where they you're able to go there if you're from the tribes of White Mountain Apache Tribe and San Carlos Apache Tribe, where they do their daily runs um, with transportation. And as for Navajo, I understand it's on a Friday, so you have to go in uh, the day prior to sign up for transportation home.
0: Okay. And Reva, do you know how many of these suspected fraudulent treatment centers have been closed to date? And do you have any idea how many are still out there in operation if people are still being recruited and there's still people dying?
4: Um, from the last time we spoke, there was quite a few. I, I understand that there was, we were, we were um, estimating like 3,000 homes just in the general Phoenix area. How many of those have closed? I don't know because a lot of these are just like, they're um, said to be family homes. So when they're, they can't get the money anymore since the fee schedule was changed in May, a lot of them just up and left these homes. So, and then the, these homes are not even on, you know, they're not even um, registered or anything. So with that count, I wouldn't know and um, okay. But the facilities, I know we're probably hitting about 250, 300.
0: All right. Wow. And I know you said some of them are just in very ordinary neighborhoods. Some of them are very nice homes and gated communities, and perhaps neighbors uh, don't even realize what's going on next door in some cases, right?
4: Correct. We know of one um, gated community where they had 65 homes, sober living homes there. And Jeez. if you were to drive through there, you wouldn't even be able to tell until you saw a fire truck or police car there um, because they had so many incidents. I know in this gated community, they've had a, f- a couple of deaths, I believe, there. Mm.
0: So, but, Reva, right now, it sounds like your efforts are, are really still targeted uh, on just helping as many people as you can. Boots on the ground, taking calls. If if somebody reports uh, somebody who's being held against their will or in one of these homes, you just do what you can to to assist them. Is that what you're working on primarily as opposed to, to larger type of investigative work or, or working with, you know, law enforcement to kind of curtail this larger problem?
4: Well, it's, there's only four of us in our um, little organization, but we have a lot of other advocates that are out there um, that, as stolen people, stolen benefits, we're able to have people reach out to us and give us the information. If they need to go home, um, we help them with resources on going home. Either we buy the bus tickets or the plane tickets. Um, We now have um, like the Montana tribes are on board now with um, transportation. So it's just a matter of reaching out to the different tribes and, you know, collaborating with them to make sure we got, you know, their relatives taken care of as ours. We've sent so many home via um, Greyhound here in the Valley up to the reservations, close to the reservations. So we try to make sure family meets them there when they're getting dropped off. We always reach out to the families to make sure that there's somebody there. We're not just gonna put them on the bus and let them go we're going to make sure somebody's there to pick them up and then we always ask that they call or we'll call them and make sure that they made it so we're doing tons of reports um, with what our relatives have experienced so it's it's nonstop. it's basically another job outside of our regular job so you know if somebody needs to get home or somebody needs to get picked up I'll reach out to either Jerry, um, Jared, or um, Raquel and see if somebody will go pick them up. And we, we always, um, we're talking nonstop during the day, trying to figure out what to do, how, right. what next to do.
0: All right. Reva, where do the resources come to help these people? Where are, you getting, where are you getting your funds?
4: Our resources are from our GoFundMe. We have a GoFundMe site, help, um, help our Native relatives to get home. And or um, just donations sometimes we have to buy our own, you know, necessities for a while there was coming out of pocket. And if we don't have the funds, we'll still find a way to get it, um, whether it's coming out of our pocket. But lately, a lot of it's based on donations. Um, We've had a lot of people that have donated. So we're able to get um, resources for our outreach because we do outreach, try to do it at least twice a week um where we're we're going out and talking to our unsheltered relatives that were in these homes that are now kicked out into the curb so you go to the areas that they they pretty much stay in you know that's the only place that they know of because of the fact that they were they were put in these homes in that area so and they're off the reservation so they're not going to go too far away from where they only know where they're at in the valley
0: okay and Reba, so we'll
4: go out there I'm sorry
0: and about how many people have you been able to to assist so far using this platform stolen people stolen benefits
4: i'd say we're probably we've gotten probably about 300 home but we've helped over i'd say a couple of thousand okay um just by you know helping them with food or you know resources
0: okay Well, great job. I really applaud you and all of your partners. Uh, It just seems like such a a monumental undertaking. But I am worried, Reva, how long can you folks hold this up just using donations and a a GoFundMe page? Because this has got to cost a lot of money.
4: It does. Um, There's days when we don't have anything and we try to um, implement the 211 Option 7 more so when we don't have anything. But You know, again, if we're out there doing outreach, we can at least give them water and sandwiches and get information from our unsheltered relatives so they have, you know, something to at least eat or drink. So, you know, we make it work regardless and how long we can do this for as long as we have to.
0: Okay. And these folks, the the 300 that you've helped get out of these homes, what do they tell you? What are they saying?
4: They're grateful. You have a lot of um, success stories with them, you know, going home and wanting to advocate against what's going on. I have a few from Montana that are now advocating out there. Um, Here in the Valley, you hear from the family members where they've stepped up and they're advocating now against this. So it's really just uh, a wheel turning, you know, getting everybody on board and voicing their concerns and voicing, you know, everything about this. So we don't have this happen.
0: Any idea with regard to, or even like yourself, what percentage of folks that you've assisted are actually residents of Arizona, Navajo Nation members or other tribes, and what percentage are from out of state?
4: I would say the amount that we've helped out of state would be probably like 30%. 30%.
0: 30%. And what all are you able to offer those folks from out of state? Because um, it sounds like you try and get the tribes to assist with travel. Is that how it works primarily? Yes.
4: yes. Before, again, we did it on our own, and then now we've reached out to the different um, tribal councils up there. So um, there are advocates under the MMIW um, up there, Northern Cheyenne, Crow, Um Blackfeet, and I think there's another one, Um, but we reach out to them, and I actually have a group chat with a few of the ladies up there, so if something happens, they direct me in a place I need to go, and then we start um, reaching out to the council, and they've really been helpful.
0: Reva, really appreciate you coming on the show today. We're going to take a a break here in just a short moment, but uh, when we come back, we're going to talk with Jerry, our second guest and jerry actually helped a person escape from one of these treatment centers in arizona she did that uh, about a year a little over a year ago in the summer of 2022 and it was quite a harrowing experience she's going to talk about that on the other side of this break right now anybody listening if you have any experience with uh, what's going on with these treatment centers there in arizona and this medicaid fraud investigation it is ongoing and we sure would like to hear your thoughts your comments Apparently, uh, these scams have been widespread, not only in the state of Arizona, but across parts of Indian country. So please give us a call. 1-800-996-2848. This is Sean Spruce, host of Native America Calling. You can listen in every weekday to hear the only national call-in show from a Native American perspective. We explore topics that range from traditional cultural practices to -to up-to-the-minute news that affects every American. We hope you can join us for the next Native America Calling.
3: Education sovereignty, it begins with us. That's the theme of the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show to be held in Albuquerque October 18th through the 21st. You have an important role to play in the ongoing effort to reclaim education sovereignty. The agenda includes an educator day a student day, professional learning opportunities, and the NIEA Awards Ceremony. Registration ends October 13th at NIEA.org.
0: You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're getting updates on the Medicaid fraud in Arizona targeting Native Americans. We're learning about citizens from tribes as far north as Montana and North Dakota who are among those caught up in the scam. Some tribes are helping victims return home. Do you know someone who was targeted by one of the businesses in Arizona we're talking about today? Have you been a target yourself? Tell us about it. 1 800 99 Native. Really like to hear your story today. Jerry Long works with Reva Stewart uh, in these efforts to assist and help some of these folks who have been victimized by these fraudulent uh, treatment centers there in Arizona. And, Jerry, Last summer, you helped a person uh, from the Navajo Nation escape one of these treatment houses. It was a really, really tough ordeal. Tell us what happened.
5: So last year, I was working at Pathfinders Recovery, and um, I got a phone call because at the time, you know, it was on social media, but nobody really knew what was going on. This is when um, people just started to become aware of everything. So um, I got a phone call on my phone because I always posted my phone number if anybody needed help. So somebody called me on my cell phone when I was at work and um, he was whispering on the phone and he stated he was inside of a house, that he was here for treatment and he was inside of a house. He said that um, he didn't want to be there anymore, that he wasn't safe, you know, He told me he was from the Navajo Nation, so, you know, for me, I had to react. So he told me that in the house that they had uh, done something to the phones to where they couldn't receive any phone calls or make any phone calls out. So he had snuck downstairs to where the phone was, and he had called me from the phone. So I told him, you know, just give me your address. Give me your address. I'll be there in about 45 minutes because this, where he was at, he was maybe 30 to 45 minutes away. So, I left my job and I went straight out to the house. And when I got to the house, you know, when I was on the phone with him, I told him, I'm going to park across the street. And I gave him the description of my car. I said, I'm going to park across the street. I said, "Um, I'm going to stand there. So, he told me, you know, you have to come at the top of the hour because that's when they let us go smoke. We go outside to the front to go smoke. So, he goes, I'll be outside around this time. So, I said, okay. So for me, you know, I have my gun inside of the trunk of my car. I had my gun in the trunk of my car, and while I was en route there, I had called one of my friends from another treatment facility, and I told him what was happening. So he told me, you know, just be careful. He said, call me when you get there. Put me on mute. He goes, I'll keep it on three-way. He goes, that way, if anything happens, he goes, I'll have the address, and I'll just call the cop. So I said, okay, so I get to the house and I park across the street and I waited and then all of a sudden, you know, these, the natives come out of the house. So the natives come out of the house. There was about maybe eight to 10 of them. And I stood outside of my car, like I told him, and he saw me. I knew who he was because he looked right at me. And there was three health managers outside too. You know, they were, um, they were African house managers, and I kind of just called out, you know, Matthew, Matthew, are you here? So he kind of just looked at me, and I told him, I said, are you ready? And he just stood there because he didn't know what to do. So the house manager, one of them, told me, who are you? And I told him, I said, I'm here to pick up Matthew. He doesn't want to be here anymore. So they told me, oh, well, you need to wait for the owner of the house to come back. So I told him, I said, no, he doesn't have to wait. He's here voluntarily. You know, he's here receiving services with his insurance plan. I said, he's here on a voluntary basis. He can walk off if he wants to. So the guy tried to coax him back inside and kept telling him, hey, you need to come inside and do your discharge paperwork. And I immediately told him, he does not have to go inside to do any discharge paperwork. You could document it as an AMA. He does not have to stay here. He doesn't have to go inside. Mm -hmm. So the house manager told me again, oh, just wait for the owner to come back. And I said, no, we are leaving. So after that, you know, he tried to tell Matthew, do you want to come inside? you got to get your stuff. You know, you need to get your stuff. So Matthew, he said, no, I already packed my stuff. And he was already ready. He said, I put my um, stuff behind the tree over here. He had already hid his stuff outside. So I told him, I said, go get your stuff, put it in the trunk. I had the trunk open and we went towards my car and I stood right by the trunk and then the guy came up to us again. And he said, "Just if you can just wait for the house owner to get here. And I said, sir, he does not have to stay here. He can leave. And then my friend that was on the phone, he kind of spoke up on the phone. He goes, hey man, you know, he's there voluntarily. If you don't let him go, I have the address to the house and I'll call the cops. So the guy backed off and then I told Matthew, I said, get in the car, let's go get in the car. So, so Matthew got in the car and Right after that, you know, there was other Natives there, you know, and I told him, I said, does anybody else want to go with me? And then two other Natives kind of spoke up and they said, yeah. So they got in the car with me and then I drove them back into Phoenix and um, two of the Natives, you know, I bought a bus ticket. They went back home. We ate dinner at a Mexican restaurant and then... Matthew finally got a hold of his mom and his mom said, you know, I won't be there until tomorrow morning. I'm going to leave early in the morning. And I just got, you know, he had nowhere to go. I didn't know what was going on at this point. I was just as in shock as, you know, everybody else. And I got my guest room ready for him in my house. So he kind of, he stayed in my house overnight. And then the next morning his family came into town and they got him and then they took him back to the reservation.
0: Okay, all right. Well, I'm, I'm so glad that that worked out and you were able to to essentially help those people escape of, uh, geez, just being held like that. It just sounds more like kidnapping than uh, than residential treatment. But so, Jerry, I think somebody listening today, you know, the question is like, well, geez, you know, this just sounds so bad. It sounds scary. Um, and what about somebody that actually really needs Help. They they need to go to one uh, to some sort of a treatment center. I mean, there's got to be a, a real breach of trust here now. Like, how do people feel? You know, they they. How do you know? How do you know whether or not one of these treatment facilities is actually a good treatment facility, and, and they're actually there to help you, or, or are they a fraud? What what are you telling people?
5: Well, I work for um I work for legitimate treatment facility in Phoenix. You know, we're Joint Commission certified with the state of Arizona were properly licensed. I uh, My job is to collaborate with all other facilities within Maricopa County and Tucson and Prescott. So, um, I collaborate with all of the legitimate treatment facilities in these different areas. You know, I go in, I tour each facility, I see the curriculum, I look at the licenses on the wall, I look at the houses, you know, and a lot of the facilities that I work with, you know, they are joint commission certified with the state of Arizona. They are trustworthy. You know, they don't focus on just one, you know, nationality. They focus on everybody out there. They have different insurances that they're able to accept within each facility. You know, I collaborate with a lot of these legitimate treatment facilities that I've personally toured myself, that I've put, you know, multiple. Not just natives, but you know, I put a whole population in these facilities, and they've been successful at it. You know, we tend to, um, you know, I know that a lot of the natives that are coming out of the group homes, that are coming out of these IOP facilities, they're hesitant. They're very hesitant, but you know, that's why you know, like Riva said, we either you know we try to get them home, like we try to get them back home, and then. You know we try to have them do it the right way this time rather than just you know jumping from place to place to place.
0: Jerry earlier Riva mentioned reaching out to some of the other tribes uh, tribal governments in Montana and North Dakota and and overall how receptive are these other tribal governments uh, and how supportive of the are they and how much help are they able to provide their members to get a bus ticket or to get assistance and get them home to their communities?
5: Well, you know, when we first started all of this, it was hard. You know, it was really hard to talk to the tribal, you know, the tribal leaders. You know, the tribal leaders weren't listening to us. Riva kept calling and calling, and we weren't getting a response. Like, I went to the Navajo Nation in March, and— I went there for two days of meetings with the tribal leaders, and I kind of told them what was going on, and, you know, they, they listened, and they automatically reached out to access, and then that's when the whole thing just went crazy up here, and they started Operation Rainbow Bridge, and they send transport down here to Phoenix, I think, once a week, and then Montana, once we got the advocates, once we got the other advocates on board, it wasn't the tribal leaders, it was the advocates. Once we got the other advocates on board, they were the ones that were the grassroots just like us and they pushed in their states to get action on this. You know, but over here in Arizona, um, I know that White Mountain Apache, they send transport down here every day for the tribal members. They all have to go to Phoenix Indian Medical Center as well as San Carlos Apache. They send um, transportation here every morning too for the tribal members and then the Navajo Nation does it once a week as well. And then there's mm-hmm. also two-on-one, you know, option seven where they can call and get temporary um, hotel until they can figure out their aftercare.
0: Right, Jerry. So for somebody who you can't, uh, you can't get a bus ticket for, them, maybe they're from out of state, how long can can you help them? How long can you put them in a hotel room or some sort of other facility until you can find the help and the assistance that they need?
5: Well, we try not to go towards the treatment facility route just because, you know, we don't want to put them in a treatment facility and then have them AMA because we're getting ready to send them home. If we send them to treatment, you know, we try to get them to the treatment facility to get the help that they need first mentally and with the addiction. So we try to operate, you know, two-on-one option seven, and they'll keep them in the hotel, I guess, um, from maybe three to seven days. But that's more than enough time for us to react. To get you know the the plane ticket for them to go home, usually the plane tickets are anywhere between 48 to 72 hours or 24 to 72 hours where we can get them home. And then once they get the plane tickets from the tribes or if we get it, then we do the transport between me, um, Reba, Jared, and Rocky. And we wake up early as early as three o'clock in the morning to go pick them up. You know, 45 minutes away just to take them to the airport and make sure they get on the the plane on time.
0: Mm -hmm. And Jerry, have you been involved in any of the prosecutions uh, with some of these homes or some of these events? What's your role there?
5: No, we don't, you know, we're just, we're grassroots, you know, we report. Like whenever we get somebody coming out of the home, you know, we assist with the reporting of everything. And then once it's sent up, You know, what whatever happens after that, you know, we don't hear anything about it.
0: And as I understand it, uh, one of the issues here is that with some of the the money that was available, the assistance money that was available during covid, it created a loophole, which some of these places were able to exploit and uh, and get a lot of money for every one of the Native American people that they housed. About how much how much money is it? is it are we suspecting that these folks might have made uh some of these houses and just how much were they making every day for housing these people?
5: So, you know, at the beginning when COVID um when when COVID happened, you know, with um American Indian Health Plan, you know, with Access, there's um different plans within Access. You got Mercy Care, Health Choice, Care First, Banner, um and then there's also American Indian Health Plan. Now with these other plans, you have to have a contract with the plan in order to bill for them. So you have to go through the licensing, you have to go through the, um, the inspection of the facility and all of this stuff. But with American Indian Health Plan, it was a fee for service. So there, there, there wasn't a contract in place. There should have been like a contract agreement in place before, allowing anybody to bill for American Indian Health Plan. It was basically a free-for-all. You know, all they had to do was go inside, make an NPI number stating that they're a substance use facility, and then they were able to bill for American Indian Health Plan. At the beginning, it was $1,300 per day per American Indian Health Plan client. And that's just the fee for service. But then you also have to think about the ancillary codes. Once you input the ancillary code, it could go up anywhere between $1,500 to $1,700 per day for each American Indian Health Plan client. And with American Indian Health Plan, they didn't require any documentation stating that they are Native American. So these houses figured out that, you know, some random, you know, white person with blue eyes can just call in and say, you know, I want to switch to American Indian Health Plan. So, they were allowing just anybody to get onto the American Indian Health Plan um, insurance. So, that's how these houses, you know, they were housing anywhere between maybe 10 to 15 inside of each house. And these IOP facilities were having at least maybe 50 to 70 clients inside of their IOP and then getting these houses. But they were billing up to maybe fifteen to $1,700 per day per native. And that's why they started to get greedy and they started to go up to the reservations and they started to just offer housing, food, you know, um, mm. we'll give you so much money a week if you stay with us. They were buying them phones. They were buying them alcohol. You know, alcohol was the main addiction with Native Americans, but then they started to introduce the fentanyl pills to them, and they were feeding them fentanyl pills inside of these houses, too, to get them to stay. And, you know, that's how this whole thing, they just started to go on the reservations. They just started to take the natives off the reservations, and then they started going out of state, and they started recruiting from out of state as well.
0: Okay. And I know... One of the issues here, too, is this is just these sober living homes, as they've been described. I mean, this is a booming business in the United States right now, even beyond Native America. There's a huge demand for these types of facilities, and uh, there's very low barriers to entry, as I understand. I mean, you can go on YouTube and you can find a video that'll teach you how to open up one of these sober living homes. Doesn't require a whole lot of legwork, uh, not a lot of regulation involved. So when we come back from this next break, we're going to talk more with Jerry and Riva about uh, what states uh, can do to better track some of these Medicaid reimbursements and uh, how to fix uh, the system going forward. Because, again, it just seems like it's been damaged so severely. And you have people that are, are, are going to and whether or not it's safe to go to a treatment facility. And they're going to want to know which kind of treatment facility they can go to and, and just all these other factors that come into play. So, folks, please stay with us. And anybody listening, if you have any firsthand experience with any of these types of treatment centers or you know somebody that does, we would really like to hear your story today on Native America Calling. Our phone lines are open, in fact, so give us a call. Tell us what you know, 1-800-996-2848 one 800
3: Did you know that bare space is best when it comes to your baby's sleep? That's right. When you keep their crib free from toys, pillows, blankets, and other loose objects, you can drastically reduce the risk of suffocation. All your little one
0: needs is to be placed on their back atop a tightly fitted sheet to ensure a
3: safer night's rest. More infant sleep safety information at cpsc.gov. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission.
0: This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're focusing on the Medicaid billing scam in Arizona. Some families say their loved ones were either held captive or pushed down to the streets. Some tribes and community advocates are assisting victims. But tell us what you know about this troubling situation impacting some of the most vulnerable people in our communities. 1 800 996 2848, the number to call. On our show today, we have Reva Stewart, who is a grassroots advocate with the Stolen People, Stolen Benefits Campaign. She's in Phoenix, Arizona. And also Jerry Long in Phoenix. And Jerry is Director of Business Development at Milestone Recovery. And she's also an advocate with regard to this issue here in Arizona with these Medicaid, these treatment centers, and this uh, Medicaid fraud. And Jerry, I want to ask you, I mean, in your opinion, what can the state of Arizona do in other states to keep better track of these Medicaid reimbursements to avoid this in the future? Because it just seems like if somebody was paying closer attention, uh, a a lot of these bills wouldn't have been paid. And they would have been very, very quick to spot that, hey, something's fishy, something not right is going on in some of these treatment centers, and we need to take action.
5: Well, you know, if they had treated the American Indian Health Plan like all of the other health plans within Access and had a contract in place with um, an an actual, you know, service fee that made sense, then you know this wouldn't have happened. You know, American Indian Health Plan, they just they had no oversight on it. There was no oversight on any of it. You know, and if it was American Indian Health Plan, you know, especially American Indian. And there should have been some sort of documentation stating that they are, at, in fact, Native American. Like, you know, on the Navajo right. Nation, we have a certificate of Indian birth, you know. And when they, when they sign up, they should have required some sort of documentation stating that they were Native American. And then, you know, the Indian Health Services, the Indian Health Hospital should have had, you know, a case manager assigned to each one of them that wanted to come up to get treatment to kind of keep track of them. You know, just to call the facility itself to make sure they're doing okay. Talk to the, you know, relative that's inside of a facility at least once a week just to hear their voice and make sure they're okay. But there was just, there was no coordination of care while they were inside of these homes. You know, if they had just kept the American Indian Health Plan like all of the other plans, then Honestly, I don't think that it, it would have gotten to this extent at all. There was a Mesa woman that opened up a home, and she was caught. And she laundered over $22 million between 2020 and 2021 from wow. American and Indian land.
0: Well, Jerry, thanks. Uh for that clarification. And I'm gonna go ahead and bring in a third guest into our conversation. Joining us from Browning, Montana is Shelley Hall. She's a member of the Blackfeet Tribal Business Council. Hello, Shelly, welcome to Native America calling. Well, Shelley, we're having a, a, a really it's a tough conversation today, learning uh, about this Medicaid fraud there in Arizona and, and the ripple effects. And I know that there have been uh, numerous, numerous tribal citizens uh, in the state of Montana. Your tribe uh, as well has been uh, caught in the middle of this uh, of this horrible situation. And I know that the Blackfeet tribe has even gone so far as to, to declare a public health state of emergency over its citizens who have been victimized in the state of Arizona. Tell us more. What does this emergency do?
6: So um, we declared the state of emergency because um, in Montana, there just wasn't the awareness that, um, that this situation was um, happening and that it was, um, a negative situation instead of a positive situation for um, the population of people that um, needed these services. So a lot of the families were sending their loved ones down there um, hoping for a positive outcome um, in regards to their addiction. And it was just the opposite. There was uh, fraudulent behavior and they weren't receiving the services that address their addiction, and so I, by declaring. Uh,
0: okay, uh, just really quickly, Shelly, do you do you have a count of how many Blackfeet citizens have been impacted by this fraud? I don't. And what are you hearing specifically from from some of the individuals and in some of the families that you have been able to assist and get home?
6: Um, just that. Uh, in the homes that they're in, um, there's more Blackfeet that are down there. Some of them are choosing to be down there, even though the awareness now is out there with the state of emergency. Um, so, and then we just have some that, as they as these homes close up, they reach out and we um, get them the assistance to get home because. Part of the the problem is that they provided plane tickets to Arizona for them, but um, when they want to come home, there's no assistance. They don't right. get, um, get them a plane ticket home,
0: right. and, and, and so what turn was them out on the streets? Yeah, geez. And, and what was the appeal of Arizona? Are there not enough treatment facilities there, in and around Blackfeet Reservation, and other parts of Montana? Is just is that why they had to go to Arizona or why they were drawn there?
6: I think they were drawn there because um, for a couple of reasons. Um, the, we do have a treatment center here in Browning. Um, it's more, I would say, geared towards alcohol addiction and not so much. Um, I don't think from what I've been told is they didn't feel like um, it addressed the uh, – the drugs like the fentanyl and those types of addictions, Mm -hmm. mess. And so um, also um, being on a reservation um, and being around, like when you're trying to get sober, trying to get clean, uh, being in the same environment is a struggle because there's always that pressure and that tendency to turn back to the drugs and alcohol and so I think that by getting out of Browning and going to a different state, they felt like they could be more successful and not have that pressure.
0: That makes a lot of sense, absolutely. Shelly, this emergency declaration, does it free up any funds to assist these people?
6: Um, We were hoping that it would. Um, We applied for some funding but um, we just recently found out that we were denied the funding so um, I know that the state of Arizona is uh, providing assistance and they are um, helping with plane tickets home and so the last group of individuals that um, wanted to come home um, they actually got their flights paid for um, by the state of Arizona
0: and has the, the Blackfeet tribe ever experienced an event like this before? I mean, it just seems like something out of a movie or something, you know, just tribal members basically in some cases being kidnapped and held against their will in, in, a, in a state far away and, and having to escape out of these conditions. I mean, is it unprecedented?
6: Yeah, I, I don't recall of any, anything like this ever happening.
0: Do you get a sense that uh, there might be some of these scams going on outside of Arizona and other states, too, that could be exploiting and, and victimizing Blackfeet people?
6: Uh, yeah, I, I did hear that it, it is spreading to other states, but hopefully we can prevent it with, with the awareness.
0: And and once you get your tribal citizens home, uh, what are you able to assist them with uh, once they get back to Montana? Can you provide housing or or get them into another treatment center that's maybe closer to home?
6: Yeah, that's that's what we're um, focusing on. So they can go up to our treatment center and um, get a new assessment and then uh, either if they're – wanting to go to treatment in Browning, that that would be an option or trying to get them referred out to a treatment center within the state of Montana. And
0: is so there any talk to. is there any talk there in Browning of maybe expanding that existing treatment center beyond just the alcohol focus that it has now or maybe building new treatment facilities in the area so you're not so dependent on, on sending people out of state like this?
6: Yes. Yeah. That is Definitely in our discussions.
0: And what would maybe what is it, what would it take? Like for instance, like the center there in Browning right now. Uh, what would it take to expand that and, and, and meet some of this unmet need with regard to these folks who've been victimized?
6: Well, um, first of all, would be the detoxification. So we don't have a detox facility um, on the Blackfeet Reservation. Uh, they have to be sent out for that and so that's what we're looking into is what would it take to to bring a detox facility to browning or how could we better coordinate services to get them detoxed and then sent to treatment after after the detox
0: all right and shelly other tribes there in montana what are you hearing from those folks
6: um, I haven't heard specifically from any other tribes other than uh, that they also have members that were affected by the Arizona crisis.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, what's the the overall? I mean, I mean, they're in Montana, even uh, beyond the Blackfeet Reservation. I mean, what are you hearing from just people there in Montana who learn about this incident and are just discovering it for the first time? Are they supportive? Of, of your efforts to, to bring your folks home? Are they indifferent? Uh, what's their response? I'm curious.
6: Um, I think that it's been supportive, um, especially like um, the news media. A lot of them have reached out in wanting to get the word out there, um, along with the state of emergency, uh, because part of it was a recruitment effort. Um, and that was, we prevented um, people from coming onto the reservation and recruiting um, individuals down to Arizona. I was told that um, there were people coming in vans to pick them up or just talking to them and their families and getting them the plane ticket down. So um, we, we prevented the recruitment efforts as well along with our state of emergency.
0: And Shelley, for a Blackfeet tribal member who perhaps is listening to our show right now, who has been victimized, who maybe was in Arizona and has just gotten hope, or maybe they're in Arizona right now and they're in one of these homes and they're worried mm-hmm. and they're trying to get home, what do you want them to know? What would you like to tell them?
6: That we're definitely here 100% to support them. And they can reach out and we, we will respond and do everything we can to get them back home safely.
0: And how do they do that? How do they reach out? Do you, is there a number to call? Who do they talk to?
6: Um, so if they wanted to reach out here, they could just call the, the tribal office, the main tribal office, 406-338-7521, and they could reach out to me. Shelly Hall or my administrative assistant Kellen Hall and we will respond. Um, we've, we've also had a community member. Um, she doesn't live on the reservation but she had a brother that was affected and she has been um, very helpful in um, coordinating uh, with the, the tribe to get individuals home. So um, I'll just her name is Laura McGee and people have been reaching out to her on Facebook and she responds immediately to their requests as well.
0: Shelley really appreciate you joining us today and uh, thoughts and prayers to you and, and all of your brothers and sisters and relatives and, and family and community there among the Blackfeet tribe. Thanks again for talking with us and Uh, I want to go back to Riva as we begin to wind down the show. And Riva, what would you like to see happen with regard to these ongoing prosecutions? What what needs to occur? What what needs to to happen legally in order to move forward? And uh, and essentially, of course, the end. You know, get get good treatment centers open, legal, lawful centers that are really there to help people and assist. What do you want to see happen?
4: First, I would like the accountability of what has happened um especially with a lot of our relatives that have um, passed away because of these homes i would like arizona to be held accountable and admit that they were wrong um and you know what for the tribes to start opening up detoxes um, detox facilities and behavioral health facilities and their own um you know sober living facilities to help our own people where we don't have to rely on, you know, the government so much. But, yeah, that's what I would want. Um, Eventually, I would like these homes to be all shut down and for access and AZDHS to, um, you know, like Jerry had said earlier, to actually see what, you know, needs to be done with our Native American people, you know, with the Certificate of Indian Blood, um, mm-hmm. have access to that. So, yeah, I would definitely, definitely do that. And with the investigations, hold these people accountable for what has happened to our people. We've had so many of our relatives that have been affected by this. And when you hear in their voices and you're out there searching with them when their family members have passed away, is by, by far the hardest thing to do And I've been there, been there with families that have learned of death because of these homes. So it's devastating all the way around. And that's my drive is I want accountability.
0: Well, Reva, uh, thank you uh, for having the last word here and thoughts and prayers, of course, to to folks there on the Navajo Nation and other Native communities in Arizona who've unfortunately uh, fallen prey to this horrible incident. Uh, We are going to have to wrap up the show. Appreciate our three guests today, Reva Stewart, Jerry Long, and Councilmember Shelley Hall, for updates and insights into resident treatment facility Medicaid fraud in Arizona. Join us next week for another lineup of discussions and conversations about Indigenous issues and topics. I want to thank all of our crew and staff members here at Native America Calling and Kiwanek Broadcast Corporation for another great week here on Native America Calling, giving you, Native America, the stories and information that you need. Have a safe weekend. I'm Sean Spruce.
3: Do you want to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help.
4: I would describe the SBA as a treasure. They were there to help lay a foundation. They have people that are full of wisdom. I think that's the biggest thing. I wouldn't be where I am without those resources. They've supported me. They've loved me. They've been there. They've showed up, and they believe in what I can do with my business.
3: For your small business needs, go to sba.gov. All SBA programs and services are extended to the public on a non-discriminatory basis. Support provided by Amerind. Amerind is 100% tribally owned and partners with tribes and their businesses to provide affordable commercial insurance coverage, protect tribal sovereignty, and strengthen Native American communities by helping to keep dollars in Indian country. Information about property, liability, commercial auto, and workers' comp available at amerind.com. That's a m e r i n d.com.